This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, December 12th, 2022. Thank you for being with us today, and thank you for contributing during our Season of Giving fundraiser last week. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Happy Monday. Ahead this hour, Sam Dean talks about 10 years as the leader of the Scott Family Amazium and what the future may look like for the Science Museum. Let's start the show by peering into the future of moving people and things in Arkansas. Last week, the Arkansas Council on Future Mobility, appointed by Governor Asa Hutchinson in February, released a plan for Arkansas's approach to the future of mobility. The blueprint offers timelines for legislative, professional, and technical maneuvers to make Arkansas a leader in the future of mobility. Friday, I talked with Governor Hutchinson and Sam Sigari, the chair of the group. Governor Hutchinson says he's encouraged by the plan. And the report is very, very bold. Uh, One of them being the Arkansas Innovation Fund that will uh, set aside some of our reserve funds for uh, investing in startup companies that will help us create Uh, the new ideas in transportation. So uh, there's a number of different ideas there. And what I really like too is how they, we learn from other states and other countries as to what are good models. And we can take the best of those, implement them in Arkansas. So very pleased, but a lot of work to do ahead. Cyrus Sigari, let me bring you in here. I think one of the challenges when you're talking about the future of anything is, you know, trying to stay ahead of the curve because you could be talking about something in 2022 that could maybe be obsolete in 2024 or surpassed by something else in 2026. How challenging is managing to stay on top of where something, an industry like this is going? That's a great question. I think that to be able to to have a really well-informed idea of where the future is going, you got to get all the right people in the room that bring lots of different perspectives so you're not sitting in your own echo chamber. And so the governor, when he formed the council, brought together leaders from Walmart, J.B. Hunt, from University of Arkansas, from the policy side, from investment. My, my day job is, is a venture capital investor where I'm making very large capital bets based off of a belief of where I think the future is going to be 10 years from now. So that, that's what I do every day is think about what, what sort of things can I do in terms of as an investor to ensure that we're staying ahead and supporting an exciting, inspiring future that's going to help make life better for people. And I think when you take in consideration all these other constituents working together, coming with a common goal of preparing a state for this exciting future, I think most of our ideas can be uh, pretty well battle tested as we go forward in the next two, three, four, five, ten years to come. I'll open up this question to both of you. There there was a uh, one of the recommendations in the plan is identify laws or possible legal barriers to to moving forward. What what sort of legal challenges or barriers could there be? Well, there's uh, a couple that have been identified, but primarily uh, this requires some legislation. For example, to create the Arkansas Innovation Fund and to transfer uh, money from reserves into this fund, that takes legislative action. Uh, whenever you're looking at uh, some of the structural recommendations to have an Office of Science and Technology within state government. These takes legislative action. That's why Cyrus and his team uh, briefed the legislators on it. Uh, I've been talking to them as well as the next administration. And so there's a real receptivity to it. There might have to be some additional changes, but whenever you're looking at the regulatory side, Uh, For example, uh, right now, most of our transportation rules are based upon 
passenger side and driver side. Well, if you have an automated vehicle, uh, that is not a relevant factor because there's not a driver. And so those are some technical things that can happen down the road, but primarily we need the foundation from the legislature that will make the structural changes needed, the investments required uh, for uh, uh, to take the recommendations of this council. We really looked at just about every modality of, of future mobility as it relates to moving things in the ground, air, sea, and space. And, and I'll hit space for just one moment. You know, for it, it takes a bit of a reminding of, of folks broadly that the largest export out of the state of Arkansas is aerospace and defense related technologies, namely driven by um, Dassault Falcon Jet based in Little Rock with their manufacturing facility there, but a lot of the defense related manufacturers based in, in southern Arkansas. And one of the recommendations coming out of, of the council is uh, creating a space authority for the state of Arkansas and suggesting one step further to do a feasibility study around creating potential spaceport here in Arkansas. Now, you may say that's a crazy idea to be creating a spaceport in Arkansas. Well, it's really not that crazy. If you look around the surrounding states with Oklahoma, Texas, Florida, New Mexico, California, all having spaceports. Um, and if you look at back to your original question around the future and where things are going, by the year 2040, the space economy is expected to be about a $1 trillion economy. It's about $100 billion today. And if we want to have a part of that, we need to be prepared from the infrastructure, from workforce development, from an academic, from storytelling to policy to really be able to, to support all that. So to be able to make those leaps forward with the space authority and creating a spaceport, these are all sort of legislative um, sort of approvals that need to be put in place to, to allow the state to take advantage of this, this really exciting new future. Uh, Cyrus, were environmental advantages discussed during the 10 months of, of meetings? <clears throat> Absolutely. You know, it's um, surprising to some folks that transportation logistics represents 30% of global CO2 emissions. 30%. It's the largest contributor to CO2 emissions in the world. And so when you think about where things are going around moving people and goods, cleaner, faster, safer, lower costs, significant amount of energy is being put towards electrification of, of mobility. And so you look at companies like Walmart that has made huge commitments to go effectively net zero with their ground transportation and, and transportation broadly and J.B. Hunt and all the other large um, tra transportation companies here in the state. So <clears throat> that's a big driver for a lot of the capital that's being invested into the space and the attention from um, state governments, from countries, from companies. Um, and really that, that's the lens that we look through a, a lot of this stuff. And you know, if we step back for a second, you know, Arkansas is the natural state. And what more natural state to be thinking about keeping it the natural state and, and not just this state, but the region and perhaps the whole country around how can be responsible stewards of, of how we move people and goods cleaner, faster, safer, lower cost. Is there any sort of public education or awareness or PR campaign that will go with this? Governor, when I'm hearing you talk about, you know, the, the laws deal with passenger side and driver side and if we have driverless cars, and I know we've been talking about driverless cars for about a decade, but is there still some work? for those of us who have been driving cars for decades to think differently? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of education because the public has to have confidence in these new modes of transportation. And primarily the confidence has to come in the safety arena. And you think about the number of accidents and deaths that are caused on the highways by driver negligence. Well, that's actually reduced whenever you have more automation. And so, uh, 
we have to emphasize the safety side. We have to bring the public along and we have to make sure we create those uh, safety protections. But secondly, I would encourage everybody to, uh, we got a, a splash page, a web page. If you wanna see this report yourself, it is at arfuturemobility.org. And uh, I encourage the public to uh, see it yourself and see what some other states are doing and the opportunities for us here. Governor Asa Hutchinson, Cyrus Sigari, thank you so much for your time. This is Ozarks at Large. The Respect for Marriage Act, approved by Congress last week, protects marriage equality for both same-sex and interracial couples. The law was enacted to blunt any future decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court to alter marriage equality. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich has more. The end of marriage inequality in the United States began June 2013 when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, a federal law supported by the Clinton administration that limited marriage only between a man and a woman. Later declared unconstitutional by the Obama administration, the U.S. Supreme Court began to advance marriage equality through several state legal battles, culminating in June 2015 with Obergefell v. Hodges, which granted same-sex couples in all 50 states equal recognition under the law. Professor Daniel Weatherby serves on the faculty of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville School of Law. So on June 26, 2015, after decades of litigation surrounding marriage equality, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses in the United States Constitution guarantee all same-sex couples the right to marry. It was a 5-4 decision authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, and it marked an end to years of debate and a patchwork of legal opinions the aggregate of which created kind of a confusing and uncertain landscape for same-sex couples wishing to enjoy all the benefits and rights that attach to legal marriage. So the decision was simply monumental. The Respect for Marriage Act, however, establishes no national mandate to legalize same-sex marriage. Rather, it's a preemptive law. Yeah, so the catalyst for the Respect for Marriage Act was Dobbs v. Jackson, a Supreme Court decision published last summer that abolished any federal right to an abortion, reversed 50 years of precedent, and called into question the legitimacy of other substantive due process implied rights. In his um, concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas opined that the court should revisit several other landmark civil rights cases, including Obergefell. And despite the majority's insistence that this would not happen, an abortion was different because it involves questions about so-called potential life, lawmakers became concerned, especially after Dobbs' historic reversal of what we all thought was well-established law that the court would backtrack on other constitutional rights. The Respect for Marriage Act is a legislative check on the conservative majority U.S. Supreme Court's ability to erase well-established constitutional rights, she says. For now, Weatherby says, no federal case on the horizon asks the Supreme Court to undo rulings that pertain to same-sex marriage, 
But if the Supreme Court in future does decide to reverse Obergefell, similar to Dobbs, could that free conservative majority states like Arkansas to resurrect constitutional bans on same-sex marriage? To your question, yes, I would think so. Despite the many inroads made by the LGBTQ community these past few years um, in the law, there is a strong opposition um, rooted in evangelical um, Christianity, especially among Republicans, that seems to want to reverse some of the forward progress that we've made. The Respect for Marriage Act also protects the right for interracial couples to marry. Interracial marriage was outlawed until 1967 after Mildred Loving and her white husband, Richard Loving, who were sentenced to a year in prison in Virginia for their relationship, appealed their conviction to the U.S. Supreme Court, which supported their right to marry. Yes. So the legislation, again, the Respect for Marriage Act, says that federal and state governments must recognize legally celebrated marriages regardless of the individual's sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin. And for interracial couples in the United States, the right to marry has been recognized much longer than the right to same-sex marriage. A 1960s-era Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia, invalidated state laws that banned marriages between people of different races. But because there was an inkling that the court might revisit the substantive due process rights in future cases, Congress went ahead and preserved, um, again, the right to interracial marriage and the right to same-sex marriage with the Respect for Marriage Act. The U.S. House vote for the countervailing Respect for Marriage Act was 258 to 169, with 39 Republicans supporting. The Senate vote, 61 to 36, including 12 Republicans. More Republicans supported the law than maybe originally anticipated. And I think it's possibly because the Senate added language clarifying that the Respect for Marriage Act doesn't infringe on religious liberty, which was a lot of Republicans' concerns about the law, um, possibly because the vote came after the general election, removing some pressure for Republicans to vote a certain way. Arkansas's congressional delegation, U.S. Senators Tom Cotton and John Bozeman, and House Representatives Rick Crawford, French Hill, Bruce Westerman, and Steve Walmack, all voted against the Respect for Marriage Act. Again, the Respect for Marriage Act is not a national mandate for states to legalize marriage equality if the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court constitutional mandate, Obergefell v. Hodges, were to fall. But it would require right-wing majority states like Arkansas, expected to resurrect marriage equality bans, to legally recognize a same-sex marriage license from another state. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Arkansas PBS will highlight the state's culture and heritage in the upcoming special Celebrating Arkansas Holiday Traditions. Families are invited to share their recipes, stories, and traditions that they've passed down from generation to generation for possible inclusion in the program. More at myarpbs.org slash Celebrating Arkansas. At the age of 22, I fell in love with my boss. 
And at the age of 24, I learned the devastating consequences. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studios, Randy Dixon with the Dave and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Hello again, Kyle. Hello, Randy. What did we just hear? Well, that was Monica Lewinsky, and her boss was the president of the United States, Bill Bill Clinton. Clinton. Yeah. Quite a boss. Yes. Well, we've been talking about the Whitewater investigation for the past several weeks. We've we've covered the McDougals. We started, you know, with Ken Starr last week and— We had to wrap things up, and uh, we'll wrap up where the investigation ends and even what happened to uh, Ken Starr before he died. He had his own uh, touch brush with scandal, I guess you'd say. Um, So in in case you haven't been listening and don't remember Whitewater, it it all stems back to a real estate deal— Um, In White County, it was uh, residential plots of land that were being sold by Jim and Susan McDougal. Some questions about loans. Right. And they had convinced Bill and Hillary Clinton back in the 70s to invest. Well, it rears its ugly head again in the 90s when uh, there's an investigation. They bring in special prosecutor Kenneth Starr. And he is, of course, poking around into the lives of a lot of Arkansas, not just the Clintons. And some of them went to jail, went to prison. Right. And he's a special prosecutor, so he has a wide swath of authority. And that's how we get from a land deal in the 1970s to Monica Lewinsky. There is a through line. There is. Um, and it, it was, I guess, a tactic— um, a path that that Ken Starr always defended, saying that you follow the evidence and that's where it leads you, and that's where he says it led them. So let's let's take a, a listen to the archives, and this is Susan McDougal. Um, she has finally gotten through all of her legal problems, and she's outside the uh, courthouse where she is free and clear. And the Monica Lewinsky scandal is just breaking. One thing I do have to say, I'm really glad I'm me and not Monica Lewinsky today. I'd much rather be where I am and doing what I'm doing. Um, You know, for me, I couldn't talk to Starr once I found out that he was who he was and that his investigation was what it was. I mean, now we are criminally investigating sex. So that's Susan McDougal from the archives at the, the Pryor Center. So how do we get here? Well, it, it originally involved a sexual harassment suit by a state employee named Paula Jones. And she had alleged that uh, the, the then governor had made sexual advances to her at, she was at a convention, I believe it was at then the Excelsior Hotel. In Little Rock. Right, downtown Little Rock. And... There was an incident where she said uh, state troopers brought her up to a room or took her to a room where Clinton was, and and he made some suggestive suggestions uh, to her. But um, we've talked to uh, David Schuster, 
the last couple of weeks. And um, he was a former reporter at KTV, was on MSNBC and um, Fox. Fox, yeah. But here's what David, this, this is his sort of, uh, his thoughts about the scope of the probe and it expanding all the way to Monica Lewinsky. It turns out that, you know, along the way, I think Ken Starr's staff had been frustrated. They had never been able to get the Clintons on whitewater-related fraud. So when suddenly they were presented uh, in the you know, fall of 97 and early January 1998 that, okay, here's this Paula Jones lawsuit, and we have Bill Clinton. It looks like he may be lying under oath, and now we have a live you know, White House intern, former White House intern, who might be able to corroborate it. It was, like, so tantalizing to Ken Starr. And so his office calls the Department of Justice because every time they have to expand their investigation, there used to be they would have to get permission from a three-judge panel. If this is sort of related to what we're investigating, here's where the evidence is taking us. We need to expand. And expand it did. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. All right, so let's go back to the archives. And as this is all breaking, President Clinton uh, makes a statement at the White House um, in front of you know the, the, all the, all the press um, about the investigation of the affair. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie. Not a single time. Never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. Spoiler alert, it did not go away. This would become a, a trending news story for a long time. Years. Years, yeah. Four years, yeah. to be exact. Um, but Clinton, he had been deposed for this Paula Jones suit, and he was deposed again by the grand jury and the attorneys, um, for Star, the prosecutors, and he was asked specifically about Monica Walensky, and um, he decided he was going to cover things that, I mean, off the bat of the deposition by reading the statement. When I was alone with Miss Lewinsky on certain occasions in early 1996 and once in early 1997, I engaged in conduct that was wrong. These encounters did not consist of sexual intercourse. They did not constitute sexual relations as I understood that term to be defined at my January 17, 1998 deposition. And if you were following the news, then you, what we then had was whew, an uncomfortable sort of uh, deposition. Well... Yeah, and, you know, what was odd is he, you noticed he said, as I understand the term, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a, I'll, let's be honest, it was a weaselly legal way of, of kind of wiggling out of that. But he was asked, I, I watched the, the whole deposition, and he was asked some questions that were just, I don't know, it, not only inappropriate, but, I mean, they were th things in detail that, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't ask anybody uh, much less, the and especially, the, yeah, the <laughs> right. sitting president of the United States. 
But um, following that, and this is the same day of this deposition, he felt compelled to go before the American people. This afternoon in this room, from this chair, I testified before the Office of Independent Counsel and the Grand Jury. I answered their questions truthfully, including questions about my private life, questions no American citizen would ever want to answer. Still, I must take complete responsibility for all my actions, both public and private. And that is why I am speaking to you tonight. As you know, in a deposition in January, I was asked questions about my relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While my answers were legally accurate, I did not volunteer information. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. Let's fast forward to 1998. So after four years of the investigation, uh, the Independent Counsel's Office released the Star Report. And it was available commercially. You could go to bookstores and get it. Yeah, and I don't originally that was not supposed to be the plan right. it was not supposed to be shared like that i mean it was 453 pages yeah. and you know it cited 11 different you know grounds of uh, for impeachment um and they all came from monica Lewinsky. so we started with this whitewater they're free and clear on that the clintons are mm -hmm. and then the investigation, you know, goes from A to B to W, X, Y, Z. Yeah. And it ends up with Monica Lewinsky and everything that they found that was impeachable stemmed from that. So, um, you know, the, the report was, well, like I say, 453 pages. It was long, but it was also lurid. Yeah, it was. And very detailed um and you know if the deposition was awkward reading this was just downright embarrassing yeah. but uh star ended up going before the house judiciary committee and uh these this is what he testified the evidence suggests that the eight months included false statements under oath false statements to the american people false statements to the president's cabinet and his aides, witness tampering, obstruction of justice, and the use of presidential authority and power in an effort to conceal the truth of the relationship and to delay the investigation. Now, in his defense, Congressman uh, John Conyers, a Democrat, of course, from Michigan, who was the highest-ranking member of the committee and chair, um, had this to say about their witness. Today's witness, Kenneth W. Starr, wrote the tawdry, salacious, and unnecessarily graphic referral that he delivered to us in September with so much drama and fanfare. And now, the majority members of this committee have called that same prosecutor forward to testify in an unprecedented desperation effort to breathe new life 
into a dying inquiry. I and many others believe that Mr. Starr has crossed that line into obsession. So the proceedings begin, and Clinton is impeached by the House, and it went to the Senate for trial, and in comes another Arkansan, uh, Dale Bumpers. He had retired from the Senate. You know, he's the little old lawyer from Charleston. The best, what, what, what the, was the, book the best lawyer in a one-lawyer town. Right. Isn't that the name of it? Yeah. yeah. So um, he goes and he gives the closing statement, and here's a portion of that. We're here today because the president suffered a terrible moral lapse, a marital infidelity, not a breach of the public trust, not a crime against society. It is a sex scandal. H.L. Mencken said one time, when you hear somebody say, this is not about money, it's about money. And when you hear somebody say, this is not about sex, it's about sex. I would argue that is perhaps the most well-known speech given by an Arkansan. I would guess, yeah, and it worked. Um, he was acquitted by the Senate. So I guess um, Dale Bumper's Esquire did his job. I just want to throw in tomorrow on our show, um, retired Arkansas Supreme Court Justice Robert Brown. He ah. once worked for Dale Bumpers in D.C. Uh-huh. We're going to talk to him about his book, All Rise, How Race, Religion, and Politics Shaped My Career on the Arkansas Supreme Court. We talk a little bit about Dale Bumpers, but that's oh, on tomorrow's show. That's great. I interrupt. No, Go hey, ahead. Great plug. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, where were we? Um, the president is acquitted by the Senate. Yes. And so a few years later, and I remember seeing an interview with Kenneth Starr, who said, I'll never write a book about this. I'll never... Well, he wrote a book about this, and it's called Contempt. And so he's out, you know, doing the circuit, promoting the book. And so he goes on CBS News and talks about his book and the Lewinsky affair. What parts of the Lewinsky investigation do you regret? I regretted the whole thing, but it had to be done. When the information came to us, that the President of the United States may have been in the process of committing perjury, obstructing justice. We went to the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno. She agreed. And so the rest is all history. That's what I try to do in this book. And let's remind people of some of that history. How did your office get the tip about Monica Lewinsky? It came to us from a very well-known witness, uh, but in the Vince Foster death investigation, her name, Linda Trubb. Linda was the last person in the White House who we know to have seen Vince Foster alive before he took his own life mm -hmm. uh, in Fort Marcy Park. And so she came to us with this information that she was being asked to file a perjury-ridden a affidavit. Mm -hmm. That's how it began. Well, and this, this is kind of explains the chain of events. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of digress here, but I feel like I need to explain. It, it goes back all the way to Vince Foster. A friend of the Clintons who went with them to Washington who committed suicide. That's correct. In the first year that yeah. um, he was in office, they, he was at the Rose Law Firm. They were investigating, um, along with everything else, Vince Foster's suicide. 
And one of the witnesses, one of the last people who had talked to Foster before he died was a lady named Linda Tripp. Who became a household name. Yes, and also played by John Goodman on Saturday Night Live. But um, she was the one who recorded the conversations with Lewinsky and got all the all the dirt, I guess you'd say. I talked to reporter David Schuster about Starr's comments regarding the regret he was just referring to and uh, adding Monica Lewinsky to the equation. So many of us who were covering Starr, and I think even to Starr's own staff, Bill Clinton's behavior in the Paula Jones lawsuit and whether you know he had a relationship with Monica Lewinsky or not, and clearly I guess he did, that was so far afield from what Ken Starr's original mandate was, was to look at real estate fraud and savings and loan you know, malfeasance and whether documents were falsified and whether they got false loans, that it just seems so ridiculous that Starr would get into the sort of fishing expedition involving a White House intern. And I think in some way, maybe that's what he was referring to, that if he had said, you know what, sure, maybe there's evidence about you know, Bill Clinton lying in the Paula Jones lawsuit, but that's not what I'm investigating put together another independent counsel or special counsel out of Washington, not out of Arkansas, let them deal with this stuff. That's really not related to what I'm doing. Just because he was investigating Bill Clinton didn't mean that he had to investigate everything. Starr actually joined uh, Donald Trump's legal defense team when there was an impeachment investigation of him. Was that the first impeachment? Yes. I do not remember this. I think there was well, just such I a news cycle going on and so many things happening. I did not remember that Ken Starr joined his defense team. Yeah, I know. Um, but, uh, again, here he's on CBS News, and they they kind of put it to him. A lot of times uh, the president's defenders will actually cite you when talking about out-of-control prosecutors, fishing expeditions, perjury traps, etc. How do you respond to that? Well, as I tell in this book, I tell the whole story of the demonization that the Clinton White House and their surrogates carried on. It was a campaign of of demonization, not just of yours truly, but people in uh, the investigation and the like. Just it was this show no quarter, take them out. Uh, Hillary. The difference, the only difference, perhaps, being that that President. Trump himself is leading the charge here, whereas President Clinton had other people do it for him. For the most part. Yeah. But there were critical times, for example, after the conviction of Jim and Susan McDougal, and then some signals that uh, Bill Clinton was sending to Susan McDougal, who stood convicted of, of fraud, very serious uh, crimes that brought down a savings and loan and so forth. But you're right. Bill Clinton had a very different style, charismatic, attractive, and so forth, whereas Donald Trump uh, just comes out direct at you. Starr died this year uh, at age 76, but he ended up having his own sex scandal. Here's CBS News. Baylor University fired its head football coach today and demoted its president, Kenneth Starr. The shakeup follows a legal review that found the Baptist University mishandled several cases of sexual assault involving football players. So you have taken us from this land deal in the Arkansas Ozarks all the way through an impeachment trial. It took us long enough. Well, (laughs) if you recall, (laughs) the real thing took years. Four years. Well, I mean... Well, well, if you talk about... Whitewater. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's decades. All right, so we got something coming up 
next week. We're going to go a can, different direction. Exactly. So um, you want a little hint? Yes. The Cape Brothers. Yes. I think if if you lived anywhere uh, in Fayetteville or Fayetteville area, you know who they are. Of course you do. All right, well, let's check them out next week, shall we? You bet. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Randy, as always, thank you. See you next week. Next in Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club, pianist Edward Simon performs alongside his trio and special guest artists, the award-winning Mexican vocalist Magos Herrera and percussionist Luis Quintero in a program celebrating the legacy of Latin American women songwriters. It's Friday, December 16th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large. It was 10 years ago Sam Dean left the Bay Area to become the first executive director of the Amazeum, a concept that was not yet built nor had become the Scott family Amazeum yet. It would be two and a half years until the first visitors walked through the doors, and since, more than 1.5 million people have experienced the Amazeum. Last week, Sam Dean came to KUAF and told Kyle why he left California for Northwest Arkansas. So I've been working in science museums for, gosh, 26 years, plus or minus. And, and where the, the previous museum I was working at in the Bay Area, uh, my work was actually taking the work of our museum and, and bringing that knowledge and experience to other places. So we were working uh, just outside of Istanbul um, uh, in Turkey, uh, doing a master plan for a science center that, that has now been built. Uh, we were doing work uh, uh, elsewhere in the Middle East and in Europe. We were working across a number of museums around the co- uh, around the country, trading exhibits and doing educational programming. And and actually, there was a, 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 a there is a network of museums in Arkansas called the Arkansas Discovery Network. And I was working with them building seven tinkering studios around the state. So from Museum of Discovery in Little Rock to Mid-America Science Museum in Hot Springs to um, up in Jonesboro at Arkansas State, uh, down to Smackover, um, down at the Museum of, of Natural Resources. We were building these tinkering studios and spending time thinking about what the maker movement might look like in Arkansas. And so I had some experience with being in Arkansas, and that was the first time I had a chance to spend some time here. And, um, you know, what happened is someone told me, hey, there's something really cool going on in northwest Arkansas. You should go check it out. And I said, that sounds great, of course. Uh, I'm not going to because I'm loving the work in the Bay Area. Right. Um, but it was someone I really trusted in the field. And, and you know this, when you know, you've got a good colleague who tells you to do something, sometimes you just got to go, you, you got to at least, you know, test the waters and had a chance to be able to come to Northwest Arkansas and just sort of see for myself, you know, what was happening um, uh, uh, in the area. And I I tell you, I fell in love on that flight when I landed. I was driving around and had a chance to meet just a number of folks. I loved what was already happening in Arkansas through the Discovery Network. And, And I loved what was the possibility of this space. You could sort of feel this bottled lightning that we're trying to start this thing from scratch that is awesome in a community that is really working together and trying to figure out how to make sure that there are opportunities for uh, great learning opportunities for kids and families so all the ingredients were there you could just you could just see it you could smell it and so I remember leaving from that first trip going oh my gosh I need to be here in northwest Arkansas nearly a million and a half people have come through the doors? Over a million and a half, 1.6, 1.7 okay. million. Okay. So something's going right. 
And you, as with any museum sort of environment, you don't want it to be static. You don't want to be, a, I'll visit once and never come back. Is that a challenge? It is, it is the number one challenge for museums across the, the, the globe. You know, how do you keep an experience fresh? Um, but I'm going to tell you, actually, maybe one of the secrets of the Amazium is that we built a place that have wonderful exhibits. We also built an exhibit. So two things. One is we built an exhibit shop that is mm-hmm. continually putting ideas in play in the museum. So we have, in fact, we have a whole exhibition we just built called In the Making Now that um, is all about the process of building exhibits. It's kind of a meta exhibit. It's, it's exhibits that we are actually playing around with to understand how to build even better exhibits. Um, so we, we have the ability to enter new ideas into the system. But, but actually, the, I would say the, 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 the secret of the best museums in the world is, is the people. It's mm. not the stuff. It's the people. So we have continual change coming out by um, uh, having these, our play facilitators and educators on the floor who are continually bringing and testing out new ideas, having conversations, and having these pop-up moments that happen. And that adds the vibrancy. So the stuff creates this environment, but the people add that energy. And that energy is always changing. Any day, we're not quite sure what those sequence of experiences would be. And then you layer in special events, guests from the community, our makers and residents, all these other things that layer in even on top of that. And that's how we sort of get our experience sandwich. Um, I'm going to trademark that name <laughs> today. I've just announced it. But that's how you get that vibrant experience that is always changing. And, and you know, for us, we want to lean on the people side more so than the stuff side. I have discovered that one of the best days to be there is Tuesday when it's closed. But I've done a couple of stories there talking to people. And there is all kinds of stuff going on in that back room. <laughs> that back room is something else. You got, I don't know how many kinds of saws and cutters and all sorts of toys that I don't want to go near because I think I would lose something like a finger. But it looks like a lot of fun. I know it's work, but it looks like fun. It is. It, I feel we, we sometimes talk uh, about our, our back fabrication shop uh, and design shop as an island of misfit toys, right? <laughs> and that we have folks who are always working on ideas that are a little... That are, that are great. They could be a learning prop. They could be an exhibit. Sometimes they're just playful things like a remote control giraffe, Norbert, who rides around. Which is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know, a maker and resident from the community that, that's working on an idea. Sometimes it's a, an entrepreneur who's been working on, you know, we have some entrepreneurs who sell things in our shop and we work with them to learn how to use some of the, the more modern tools of CNC and laser to be able to work on their own uh, products. What I love is it's an idea spot. And I, I tell you, when I'm looking for a place to go to get inspiration, I kind of walk back there with my coffee cup or my soda and just absorb, first of all, the smell of like wood being cut or lasered is always wonderful. <laughs> but um, the, uh, the, the sheer joy of people giggling and laughing because they're working on cool projects that are playful and fun, but they're also kind of deep in, in kind of learning intent. You have to have a childlike enthusiasm and curiosity, I think. But you also have to balance the books. You have to make sure that that 1.6 million becomes 1.9 million and 2.2 million. You must be adept at that. You know, as our, as our, um, uh, I am learning every day. Mm. You know, I'm I'm a scientist at uh, by training uh, in biology and geology, and and. Uh, um, then I got my master's in kind of learning. So for me, learning the book side and the business side of it is something you sort of pick up along. You've been doing the business long enough, you sort of pick it up. What we have is we have a great team, we right. have a great board. Um, and so for us, we're always trying to pay attention to making sure you're right. The 
the the experience has to be right otherwise nothing else matters the finances have to be right to make sure that we're doing it well and we're prepared for the future and then our ability to uh, to to make sure that our our revenue coming in can match you know where we are is always important as well so we're always kind of in balance of how we're spending how we're bringing in money while that creative intent is kind of wrapped around it and um, I'm getting better at it every year we've done well so far <laughs> um, but but always looking to to, to to hone my own skills in that my guest is Sam Dean. He's the executive director of the Scott Family Amazium. All right, so 10 years. I mean, you've been there 10 years. The Amazium will be open. When's the 10th anniversary of opening day? It'll be, uh, well, that'll be in July, July. of 2025. will be 10 okay. years of it being open. But you've been there 10 years. You, as you mentioned, the temporary offices. What are you thinking about your next 10 years? I mean, again, you don't want a museum to say static. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think you know when you it's like when you um when you when you hit a when you hit a golf ball or hit a baseball, you don't stop at contact with the ball, right? You swing all the way through. We're still swinging through, you know, um, uh, uh, our 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 uh, uh, opening of the museum. You know, we're still we're still the museum wasn't built and is there. We're continually building this experience over time. I'm excited. We're not done doing the great work we want to do. We know we want to do more science-rich programming. We already do a ton of work in the sciences, and so we'll, we'll continue to work on our, our STEAM-based work, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. We're going to work, uh, we'll be expanding our building uh, over the next few years to, to, to do more design-rich and maker-rich experiences. All those tools that, that you say you might not want to touch, well, we want to uh, actually create a, a publicly available makerspace that allows mm. folks to come in and learn how to design and build for themselves. Um, and then a lot of teen and adult programming. We know that the learning continuum is important. You need to not just kind of put down your pencil when you hit 12 or 13. You've got to learn through your life. And there's a joy in a spot when adults and teens are working together uh, to, to, to keep honing their own kind of interests in um, uh, making stuff and tinkering and tearing things apart. So um, you'll see that happen in a, a larger outdoor space that we want to be working on over the next couple of years. I get the feeling... You're going to be here for a few more at least? I don't want to, you know, hang any pressure on you or anything. Gulp. I feel that <laughs> it was a question from our board. No, um, <laughs> no, I'm here. I mean, Northwest Arkansas st- stuck with me for a long time. I mean, this this place is this place is special. People, I mean, as we sit uh, here uh, looking across at the, at the Faithful Public Library and think about David Johnson and the, and the team over there, and we have ideas on, that we want to work on together or, or working with uh, NWAC. I was, was there earlier this week for the Integrated Design Lab, and, and I think I'm loving the work on the Amazium and our future and the impact we're going to have. You know, we're just, we're, you know, we're just getting our, le- we're, 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 we're getting up to speed, right? We've got tons of amazing things down the road that we'll be talking about over the coming months. But as a community, I feel like we're all working together to continue to build great stuff. So I think this community is, is, uh, is stuck with me for a while, uh, and I'm excited to see what, by working together, where we can all go. Um, if you're here 10 years from now, We'll talk about the 20th anniversary of your arrival. I would love to celebrate 20 years with you uh, right here. Or maybe we'll, we'll do it up at the Amazing with you on a racer. We'll be zooming around, creating our own little hovercraft course while we're doing the interview. Technology should be, should be able to support that by then, right? Yeah, okay. I, <laughs> can I wear bubble wrap for that? <laughs> I will start collecting the bubble wrap today, Kyle, if you would give us a yes on that. All right, you've got it. Sam, congratulations. Thanks for coming by. Thanks, Kyle. Sam Dean is the executive director of the Scott 
Family Amazium in Bentonville. He visited the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Trout fishing in America, named after the Richard Brodigan novel, have recorded several discs aimed for children as well as adults. Before being indie was cool, the Prairie Grove-based duo has been issuing records on its own trout label. Their 10th album, Infinity, was nominated for a Grammy in 2001. But 2004's Merry Fishes to All is the pair's first holiday-themed album. And now it's earned the duo its second Grammy nomination. Based out of Washington County, Trout Fishing in America, consisting of Ezra Idlett on guitar and vocal and Keith Grimwood on bass and vocal, have performances at the White House and the Today Show to their credit. The duo of Arky Transplants has grown its national reputation through several albums issued on its own label and three decades of near-constant touring. After kind of having a struggle back in 1986 just to make ends meet, we decided we would take any kind of job that was offered, any, 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 any kind of job. And uh, we always loved playing for kids, but then there became jobs that we would play for kids. Even Santa is expected to conform Just because, Mrs. Claus, just because we really care You've got to start the diet or the man won't fit his suit It's because Mr. Claus will not stop eating that we beg you If you won't take care of himself it's clearly up to you. Trout Fishing in America recorded Merry Fishes to All in Nashville, Tennessee. Since it was April, they got into the Christmas spirit by decorating the recording studio with Santas and Christmas trees. The band was surprised to later look outside and see a freak spring snow had fallen. Taking it as a good omen, we knew we were doing something right, they said. I thought Christmas Day would never come. But it's here at last, so mom and dad, the waiting's finally done. And you gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up. It's Christmas morning. Last night I heard reindeer on my roof. Well, you may think it's crazy, but I swear it is the truth. And you gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up. It's Christmas morning. Whether playing goofy kid songs or earnest ballads in the mold of Harry Chapin and Jim Croce, Trout Fishing in America exudes a wit and musicianship that comes across as effortless. Mary Fishes to All offers more, but in holiday rapping. In 1990, we put out our first CD, and we alternated years there for a while. We put out an album for adults one year, and the next year we do an album for kids. Next year, one for adults. Next year, one for kids. And We've kind of blended it at this point. You know, it's just everybody, you know. It may end up in the kids' section, but it's for everybody. The music is really sophisticated, but not exclusive. Did my sister get a baby doll? Did my brother get his bike? Did I get that red wagon, the kind that makes you fly? I hope there'll be peace on earth. I know there's goodwill towards men on account of that baby born in Bethlehem. From Prairie Grove in Washington County, here's Trout Fishing in America from 2004's Merry Fishes to All, the group's first holiday album with I Got a Cheese Log. At Christmas stockings full of jelly beans, candy canes and a tambourine. I got a magic kit, a top hat, and a wand. Catches mitt, an atomic watch that'll never quit. Hey man, 
What did you get? I got a cheese log. Set with a million blocks, a fuzzy robot dog that barks. I got an automatic flag catching frog. I got a model plane with remote control, a kit for making donut holes. Hey man, how did it go? I got a cheese log. I didn't ask for everything, and I've been good all year. Washed the dishes, and I even fed the dog. Everybody I know got exactly what they wanted, but I got a stinky cheese log. And a dozen slides, a skateboard, that's a blaster ride, a train set, a mountain center town. I got a DVD and a VHS, some BBDs and a BMX. And I don't even know what that is, but I got a cheese log. Share your toys with all your friends, the happiness of Christmas Eve. Remember when it comes to cheese logs, it's better to give than to receive. Prairie Grove's Trout Fishing in America from 2004's Merry Fishes to All, its first holiday album with I Got a Cheese Log. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansongs. Arkansongs is a production of Experiment Station Studios. Executive producer is Keith Merckx. Arkansongs, since 1998. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Kingston. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Matthew produced our show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Once again, thanks to everyone who contributed last week during our season of giving fundraiser to keep KUAF strong and independent. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. You can still give at supportkuaf.com. Thanks and be well.